and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush. And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Malkin. Today on the show... It's like having a bank account that is in your control. You can put a pin on it. And all of the people in the health system that you see can put bits of information in there for you. The health record of the future. The Australian government rolls out the My Health Record to declutter and personalise your medical history. But before that, on any given night, more than 100,000 Australians are homeless, with more than one-third of those being between the ages of 12 and 25. Melissa Kang from the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, has co-authored a study looking at the medical records of young homeless people who presented to two youth services in Western Sydney over the past 12 months. And Melissa says, although we have an equipped understanding of why youth become homeless, the data we have about their physical and mental well-being continues to fall through the cracks. Melissa Kang spoke with Miles Herbert. We found that homeless young people were much more likely to present complaining of physical symptoms, but when we looked at their actual diagnosis, so what the nurse or doctor assessed them as actually having they were no more likely to have a physical health diagnosis than a non-homeless young person. So they're presenting with physical health problems. And that's interesting. We can't necessarily, you know, make any conclusions from that. But one possibility is that they have much less access to your mainstream general practice and kind of checkups and healthcare. What we weren't able to look at closely, and that's partly to do with the way notes are recorded. We don't have tick boxes for this diagnosis or that diagnosis. We had to sift through the actual records. Is looking at their mental health diagnoses and the correlations there. We did notice that they had very high levels of psychological distress based on a standardised questionnaire called the K10. But in fact, those levels of psychological distress were the same as the non-homeless young people as well. Why do you think we don't have a lot of data around youth homelessness? There are two reasons, and they're probably, I think probably the more important reason is we actually aren't very good at documenting or even understanding youth homelessness. So youth homelessness has been an issue that's had some political and social spotlighting on and off for about three decades now. Back in the late 1980s, we had the first Royal Commission into Youth Homelessness in Australia. We understood back in the 80s that youth homelessness looked different from older people's homelessness, in that the great majority of homeless young people, you wouldn't know that they're homeless necessarily if you were a hospital, a general practitioner or some other health service just documenting something like an address, because young people will often give you an address, but it doesn't mean that they're not homeless. So most youth homelessness is secondary homelessness. Things like couch surfing, moving between refuges, moving in and out of home. But home itself 
i.e. the place where they might have grown up or spent time with a parent or carer, is not a safe place for them. So they, they leave. They might come back for a few days. They leave again. They're the young people that we mostly see. We don't record that very well. So we're probably, there probably are homeless young people seeing mainstream services, but they wouldn't know. You wouldn't know that they're homeless. So that's one reason we don't know very much about their physical health. Do you think that there's a stigma around reporting or presenting as homeless in use and that might make it more difficult to document? Certainly there are young people who find it difficult to talk about the fact that they don't have a home. There are others where that's not the case at all and they're quite open about their homelessness. However, the stigma is more attached to mental health problems, sexual health problems, some young people we know become homeless because of their sexual orientation, for example. So the stigma is often associated with the factors that lead into homelessness. They might feel stigmatised by the fact that the home they've come from, there are a lot of perhaps substance use problems or domestic violence or abuse. That's more the stigmatising factor. Yeah, and do you think that the lack of data around youth homelessness plays into negative stereotypes? It's an interesting question. As someone who has worked with homeless youth as a clinician as well as as a researcher, the perception that I see out there is that it has shifted, actually. I think that I think there's possibly a bit less stigma. Certainly back in the 90s, I would say that there was a bit of a perception that young people become homeless because they don't get their own way at home. I think that was a bit of a myth. You know, that was the some of the discourse that you heard. Well, they're just leaving home because they don't want to obey their parents. I think that has really shifted. I think there's a much better understanding now of the complexities that surround youth homelessness in general. That's my perception. Yeah, I think that there was some data from the ABS the last couple of years saying, you know, the majority of people think that what causes youth homelessness is like drug addictions, when we actually know it's, you know, like physical and mental health issues. So do you think that the data that you're collecting Mm -hmm. can, you know, lead to a better understanding around homelessness? I I really do. I think what we needed much better data collection systems in services such as these youth health services that can record not only homeless status, but also document their health issues more easily When we collect information in these youth health services about homelessness status, we don't necessarily then ask why or how did you become homeless because that's a very sensitive issue, often extremely traumatic for the young person. So it's something that you will get a better sense of over time as you engage with them and as they open up to you. So it's very difficult. But what we do know from Early research, ongoing research, and just lots and lots of anecdotal stories is that youth homelessness is complex, and it's certainly not a simple case of just didn't get on with my parents and I'm going to walk out. We know that it involves usually significant abuse or neglect at home, parents who are not in a position to care adequately for their children, and that's often intergenerational. It can be related to poverty, can be related to mental illness on the parents' part, substance abuse issues that the parents have, and that just gets perpetuated. The young person themselves, when they become an adolescent, which is completely, uh, and this happens, you know, across the board in adolescence, they might start to do some risk-taking, so they themselves might then start to use substances, experiment in all sorts of ways, and sometimes that can become problematic, particularly if they're homeless. Mm. So there is a higher risk of 
mental health problems, sexually transmitted infections, substance use among homeless young people, but it's not, it's not a straightforward linear cause. But there is also the group who become homeless because of sexuality and gender, and they're a group that we're really concerned about, and they can come from any strata, I guess, of society, but who are kind of, I suppose, disowned because they come out. I think that is improving. I think we have a much better understanding and acceptance of diversity but it's still the case for many young people. What kind of questions and what kind of data would you like to see as you go forward that will help paint a better picture of youth homelessness? Yeah. Well, something that's been around for decades now is a clinical tool. It's a questionnaire, I guess, a form of questionnaire, which is called HEADS. All students, medical students, nursing students, a lot of health professional students learn about this during their training. This instrument teaches the skills to ask a lot of questions about a young person's life, what we call a psychosocial history. And the first part of this questionnaire is around home. And I think what we need to do is teach all health professionals and including people in emergency departments and anywhere where a young person might present to have a really good understanding of how to ask about home. Now, of course, for the great majority of young people, they live at home with one or both parents or guardians, and it's pretty straightforward. But if we ask a little bit more around, you know, whether they've moved around a lot, who lives at home with them, how the relationships are at home, just a little bit probing a little bit more into the kind of qualities surrounding home, we will get an understanding of whether they're at risk of homelessness. I don't think it's that difficult but we need to train health professionals to know how to ask the right questions. I'm about to start a new project, a sort of pilot project, with these same services where we did this original research, where we're working with emergency department staff, we will be, to look at homeless young people's repeat presentations to emergency in Western Sydney. What we're going to be trying to do in the very first instance is talk to the staff who work in emergency about how to capture that information. It's really difficult. You can't just say to someone who walks into emergency, by the way, are you homeless? We ask for an address. A young person who is homeless or at risk of homelessness often will give you an address. And that's the end of the story. So we need to work out ways to unpack that a little bit more, particularly if they keep coming back to emergency and we have concerns about the reasons they're presenting. We think, okay, are they at risk of something here? I think certainly the majority of young people I've met who are homeless are quite happy to use that expression. Yes, I've been homeless for this long or that long. It's, it doesn't seem to me to be a particularly stigmatising word, but that might just be the young people I've met. Well, I, I from my perspective, mm. if I walked into an emergency department and somebody asked me for an address, yeah. I would think, wow, I need to provide an address yes, exactly. to get health care. Exactly. Is that what they think? I think so, yeah. Or they might take it very literally. Well, last night I slept on the, at this address. You know, it could be something as simple as that or an address where I can be maybe contacted because they might the address they provide might be a friend, you know, that they can kind of refer to. And I think you're right. It's seen as an administrative issue. It's what I need to give in order to get the health care I'm looking for. So to inquire more about homelessness, we need to find ways in those very acute settings especially. I think in general practice it can be done much more readily. But in emergency departments, when it's by definition an emergency or an acute problem, we do need to find ways to understand whether a young person could be homeless. And I think 
Those of us who work with this population work with them because we want to. Some of the people just want to get on and work with a young person and don't necessarily have time, perhaps, to kind of get all the data right. So we need... The answer is in the system. It's how we collect information at the beginning process of getting to know a young person. Melissa Kang, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking with Miles Herbert. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. Tune in Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Tuesday evening at 6.30. You can also listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Under the My Health record, your medical history, including prescriptions, GP visits and pathology reports, are all stored in one place, an online database. The My Health record, being rolled out as part of the government's National Digital Health Strategy, aims to declutter decades of physical records and offer a more personalised approach to care. Meredith Makem, Chief Medical Advisor at the Digital Health Agency, spoke at the Health Tech Forum at the University of Technology Sydney this week about transitioning healthcare online and the origins of the agency. Meredith spoke with Miles Herbert. The Australian Digital Health Agency started mid-year last year in 2016 and one of the first things we did which was really important was put in place something that Australia's been lacking for many years which is a coordinated plan for digital health services and technology and the way they should improve our health systems and communication of health information around the system. All the key stakeholders were involved in contributing to a document that really very sensibly lays out a way forward with some very practical steps but it also addresses a lot of just fixing the fundamental basics of the way health system information needs to flow around. So something called secure messaging for example is another one of the fundamental pillars and that's just simply a word for saying you know sending an email if you like from one clinician to another so that your health information can travel electronically rather than on a piece of paper. You've mentioned it a bunch but what is my health record? Yeah look my health record is One of our key national platforms, it's essentially a mobile health record that's a secure account, if you like. I mean, I'm a GP, and when I explain it to my patients, I say, it's like having a bank account that is in your control, you can put a pin on it, and all of the people in the health system that you see can put bits, deposit bits of information in there for you, and then you'll have them for all time. You can, you can see it on your mobile phone, you can carry it around. It's, it's actually quite a big change in the way people can interact with their health information, and it's been set up in legislation. It's actually been in operation for five years. If you want one today, you simply go onto the MyGov website and answer some steps to validate yourself and verify who you are, and it can connect to all your other MyGov services, but it's, it's one of the things in there. So this is actually the Australian public's right to know this information. Could you talk to me a little bit how this might change the power balance between healthcare providers and healthcare patients? Look, I think it's likely to lead to quite significant changes in that area. The legislation in Australia we have around 
privacy provides for us to have access to all of our personal information. Healthcare information has even more secure protections around it than other kinds of information. And of course, the My Health Record system is set up to be absolutely consistent with all of those rights we have in terms of our privacy legislation. But we think that by doing it in such a way, we've created a system where people will be able to get the benefits and advantages of having access to that information and allowing the clinicians to have access to that information and perhaps down the track also allowing researchers, if they choose to, to have access to that information for sort of public good and population health and health system planning purposes. But it's, it's been set up in our legislation in such a way that it's incredibly secure and it's got amazing privacy controls over it too. So you can really control who gets to see the information in there and choose, in fact, what bits of information get to be in there. As a practicing GP, what does your day look like using my health record as opposed to, you know, before that was rolled out? What do these digital health strategies and implementations change for you and for patients? Well, look, having access to digital health services and, in fact, the information in the my health record, as a GP, what it means is that I've suddenly got immediate online access to a whole lot of a wealth of digital information that I may not have ever been able to see or find. I mean, there's really compelling evidence out there that having access to this sort of information for people means that I'm going to spend a lot less time chasing down bits of info like tests and things about you that I may never have found in the first place. I'll just be able to see all the same information as all the other people that are looking after your care. And it means I'll be able to coordinate your care and support you in making health decisions better. And you'll also be much more empowered to actually be able to self-manage your own care and, and engage in more meaningful conversations with your clinicians. So we really believe it's going to lead to some very significant improvements in health outcomes for people. Also, great safety improvements. We know that clinicians having access to simple medication information that we weren't aware of before means that we're going to be making less mistakes about medications. People are going to suffer less from medication error, which causes a lot of harm and, in fact, death in the community. And we think 2 to 3% of hospital admissions are directly attributable to medication error. So there's benefits like that, as well as efficiency benefits, like just simply reducing the cost of healthcare for Australia, because as your GP, if I can see you had a blood test in the hospital last week, which for whatever reason I wasn't sent, I don't need to repeat it. You don't need to go through the expense and inconvenience of having it done again. There's just so many advantages for people as well as simply having access to their own information. Yeah, you mentioned cost and access. You know, you talked a little bit today about remote communities. How do these digital health strategies affect them and you know, will, will they be rolled out in these remote communities? Absolutely. This is a national strategy and this is a, a system that's been created for all Australian citizens and in fact you know, everyone has access to it. And it's even more important for remote and regional communities in some respects to, to be able to harness the advantages of digital health technologies because we really can't hope to provide sort of equity of access of healthcare services to people without making better use of digital health services and technologies, which which just take us to a new level in the way we can share information and communicate with each other. You know, telehealth services, for example, that are in operation now in the Northern Territory. People can stay in their remote community a couple of hours out of Alice Springs and literally visit a specialist thousands of kilometres away in Adelaide via telehealth, that sort of thing. And we also know that there's going to be a predicted big return on investment when we make... Um, substantial investments into things like the My Health Record System. So, for example, every dollar we invest into the My Health Record System, we're likely to see $14 back in return on investment over the, the next 10 years. You mentioned in your presentation that other industries are changing with the you know digital age. 
but you think that health care maybe isn't adapting as well as the other industries. Why do you think that is? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. I think there's actually a lot of complex social reasons and sort of structural funding model reasons, if you like, that contribute to... It's hard for the sector to take it up when the model around them is just hindering them in terms of their ability to embrace new ways of practising and new technologies. So, for example, GPs at the moment operate largely in a fee-for-service basis and currently it's really difficult for people to access general practitioners via email or digitally, you know, via video consultation. It's just sort of not supported by the funding models and people aren't doing it in practice. And as well as that, we've got this divide between our primary care sector and our hospital sector in Australia with different parts of the government funding and running those different systems. And sometimes what that means too is the investment in technology doesn't necessarily happen in as coordinated a way as we'd like to see. And so the systems don't end up being interoperable. So we end up in the situation that we're in at the moment where we've got some really great health technology and clinical information systems happening in particular sectors of the healthcare community, but they don't talk to each other and they're not the same as each other. And we need to try and fix that. Meredith Makem, Chief Medical Advisor at the Digital Health Agency, speaking with Miles Herbert. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Health. For more information, you can also jump on our website at 2ser.com. This show is made possible with the support of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time.